we want to uh, be aware of is whether or not our patients are on a special diet. Um, so if they're vegetarian, making sure they're, they're getting enough iron in their diet, vegan, etc. If they're lactose intolerant, they're making, making sure that they're, getting, they're still getting their vitamin D and all those kind of good things. Um, if they have celiac disease, um, things that you want to educate them about avoiding. Um, so any raw or uncooked foods, um, so meats, fish that are raw or uncooked. So a popular one is sushi. Um, so you want to avoid sushi that's uncooked. Any unpasteurized cheeses, um, again, for the same thing of risks of toxoplasmosis uh, and listeria. Lunch meat um, has a risk for listeria. Um, make sure that it's heated. Um, and then you want to make sure that they're not having any more than 12 ounces of high mercury-containing fish per week. So things like shark, swordfish, tilefish, mackerel, tuna, those are all um, types of fishes that have high um, mercury content. So we want to make sure that they're, um, that they're aware that they're not exceeding that limit. Um, foreign salmon, so um, risk of increased pollutants with that. Um, limiting caffeine and artificial sweeteners. So, Moderate caffeine intake is fine. So one coffee a day is, is fine, but you know, three, four cups a day is probably not a good idea. Um, and then the raw eggs again for the risk of salmonella. One that I just recently heard of, um, unfortunately, is hummus. I, I, who loves hummus? I didn't even, I honestly wouldn't. So hummus has recently been um, taken off the, uh, well, there's been a um, notice about a listeria outbreak with a lot of the companies that are selling hummus. So um, that's a new one that if your patients eat a lot of hummus is just to maybe look up the product and see if that particular one it has any. But any time you hear those like outbreaks on the news, like so-and-so is being recalled for whatever, listeria, et cetera, you should kind of be attuned to that and make sure you're, or, and let your patients know that they need to be attuned to that as well. How about uh, raw milk? Raw milk. Yeah. So would be like unpasteurized. Yeah. Yeah. So I would right. say no. Same for like goat's milk or somebody who lives on a farm. This is very pure. And, you know. the, the official answer is no. I'm sure that a lot of kids were, you know, born with their moms drinking raw milk. But I mean, um, there, there, there is also increased risk of developing those diseases with those unpasteurized um, cheeses and milks. <laughs> How many people have seen this? I hope everybody raises their hand. Okay, um, so we're not going to go through like every, you know this is a lot for what we're trying to do for today, but we're going to go through some pearls. So um, first trimester um, screening, you actually do not need an ultrasound for dating unless the patient has an unsure last menstrual period or a history of irregular menses. Again, you do not. This is not like an imperative that I need to order an ult uh, dating ultrasound for every patient. I know that we do that a lot. Sometimes it's for various reasons, but you really don't need to do that unless the patient is unsure of their last menstrual period or has irregular um, menses. The other time that you want to do this, if you're not able to hear a fetal heart tone by 12 weeks, then you should do it. Um, but you know, again, it's not like a you don't have to do this. Right? Go ahead. What is relatively short? Because I think a lot of patients will come in and say, "I think it's this day," and I'm like pretty sure. And in those cases, I'll usually get an ultrasound. That's a hard question. Um, I, you know, I think if they're pretty sure that they started their menses on this day, then I usually take them for their word. If they're kind of like, I don't know, I think it was sometime in the beginning of April, but I don't remember if it was like, of course, the middle, or, and then I get it, you know. Uh, I 
don't know. It's there within a week. Like if they say, well, they <coughs> but if they say it was like April, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But usually if they're within a week and then you're hearing heart tones by, but it's hard. People yeah. want an ultrasound, right? right. They, they do. Yeah, I was so, say, what percentage of our patients don't get an ultrasound right. on the first trimester? So, but often, so we have the ability to give them an ultrasound, right? What they really want to see is, is there a baby in there and is there a heartbeat, right? So you can grab the ultrasound that's in the office and put it on them. If they're eight, nine, ten weeks, you should be able to see a heartbeat um, and, and hear one, ideally by 10 to 12 weeks, certainly by 12 weeks. But um, so a lot of times that will sort of bridge the gap, I find. Like if you have somebody who's really pushing to get an ultrasound and you can say, oh, look, I see your baby. It's an intrauterine pregnancy. And look at that heartbeat. You know, that, that's enough. Um, not, I mean, the dating is really the issue. And usually with, if you're within a couple of days of dating, you're fine. Um, I think if it's more than a week off, if they're like, I don't know if it was this week or this week, or the, then we'll get the dating ultrasound. Because we can't do a transvaginal ultrasound in the office. But. That. I, I honestly don't know that a lot of insurances cover 3D ultrasounds. It's basically just a 3D image of the baby. Is that is really what it is? Um, you can see the facial features a little bit better. Again, you know, um, if they they the ones that are like out of pocket costs, the packages they have like all these silly packages of like, do you want like you know? So they can range from like 100 to 250 dollars. Some are even you know, um, but I don't know if there's like specific places that do it or? Um. Yeah, so there, I mean, even our ultrasound departments are generally using 2D ultrasound for the most part. The 3D ultrasounds medically are used for like high risk situations. You're doing intrauterine surgery where you need to know 3D anatomical like relationship <coughs> kind of stuff. So medically, they aren't needed. These are, you know, patient driven things. Um, Insurances will not cover them. They also won't cover ultrasounds for sex of the baby. So if they don't see the sex on the 20-week ultrasound, and we don't have a medical reason to send them back for another ultrasound, you're going to have to wait. You know, like, like, I know it's hard, but you're going to have to wait. Um, unless you want to pay for the ultrasound out of pocket. So the, I mean, I know those are hard discussions, and patients really are excited about this. But this is also where, like, I think, again, like, have the ultrasound, you know, practice your ultrasound skills on the right. patient. That's lots of fun. It's good learning for you. It's great for the patient. Um, but to answer your question, the 3D ultrasounds are generally not covered unless there's a high-risk medical need for that. Um, and in, in Pittsburgh, I think the only two places that I know of that do it are West Penn and, and McGee. McGee. As yeah. far as I know, those are the only yeah. two. So if your patient's interested, that's where they have to go. Yes. They have to be warned that there will be out-of-pocket costs for it. Yes. Thank you. 
again, anything that's not medically necessary, you just want to counsel your patients appropriately. I, I think, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of offices that will have an ultrasound machine in every room and show them the baby every time. <laughs> you know, so, and, and that's kind of also patient dependent. They'll choose the office that they feel gives them what, you know, what they want. Um, so. Okay. What labs do we get for initial screenings? Just go ahead and shout them out. What do you, what do we get? What's our OB panel have? Okay, hydro CBC, HIV, RPR, type and screen, HEP D, surface antigen, okay. Rubella. Sorry? You're right, syphilis gonorrhea chlamydia. Syphilis gonorrhea chlamydia, okay. UA, and culture. CBC. Why are we getting um, a culture, urine culture? Yes, and ideally you want to do that after the 11 week mark um, as per the ACOG guidelines. Um, but I know sometimes we do it a little bit earlier. Um, why do we do a UA? So you're looking at so there's a lot of controversy about the doing the urine uh, dip on every visit or not. Um, it doesn't directly tell you necessarily them, you know, because you if to officially know if there's increased uh, protein excretion, you need to do your 24 hour. But sometimes it can give you, like if you have a baseline that's always been a certain level and all of a sudden it's jumped up and the patient's exhibiting, you know, has higher blood pressure, then, you know, it, it just gives you a little bit of an inkling. Um, what labs, what, what happens with our um, hemoglobin, um, or sorry, what happens with our white count when, um, with pregnancy? Goes up, okay. What happens with Alkfos? Goes up, I see hands up. What happens with platelets? Goes down. What happens with our hemoglobin and hematocrit? Down. What happens with creatinine? We'll talk about that. What about protein? Creatinine. What happens with our creatinine? Not our creatinine clearance, our creatinine. Actually stays the same. What about our protein and our albumin? Down. And our electrolytes? Sodium, potassium? Goes down a little. So um, your um, white count can go up to 25. Um, Again, if it's all of a sudden 25 and this patient has been in labor for a long time and, you know, has been ruptured for a long time, and obviously you want to be thinking about other things. But it can, it definitely can increase during pregnancy. Alkfos can increase up to two to four times, up to um, 20 weeks during pregnancy. Platelets will have a gradual decline. It won't be like a sudden decline. Your hemoglobin and hematocrit will also go down. Um, your hemoglobin can go up, down up to two points as well. Your creatinine will stay the same, but your creatinine clearance will increase. Um, and then protein and albumin will go down about a gram per, uh, per deciliter. And your electrolytes will go down a little bit. It's not a you know, significant difference, like point by point 0.2 or um, something like that. Are you saying these are like throughout pregnancy? Throughout so pregnancy. Like a slow increase in mm -hmm. the like, okay. Yes. So like if they have a sudden bump early in pregnancy, you're still like, worried about 
so I mean, if you're, I mean, if you have a sudden bump, let's say um, it, with the white count, you you expect it to go up a little bit, but if it's going from like three to twenty-five, and there's other clinical symptoms that are concerning, then you're gonna, you know, you, you're gonna follow that up. Um, it just kind of depends on your clinical situation, I think. Okay. Um, so other things that we need to we should offer for women um, for pregnancy is um, CF and SMA screening. Um, so I mean, we should be doing this with every every patient that's pregnant. Um, hemoglobinopathy. So if your CBC, so all women get a CBC, right? If your CBC um, um, shows maybe a lower MCH or a lower MCV, um, then you should um, screen for hemoglobinopathy. If your um, CBC um, is normal, but maybe have, you have a patient that has, uh, is of African descent or Mediterranean descent, uh, Middle Eastern descent, et cetera, then you may also want to consider doing a hemoglobinopathy screen in those patients. A fragile X screening is recommended with patients with family, uh, patients with family, of, uh, family history of fragile X. Um, and then Tay-Sachs, again, is offered to women um, before or during pregnancy if the couple um, is of Ashkenazi Jew, Jewish descent or French Canadian or Cajun descent. The key here is these, so these tests are expensive. Um, we don't need to repeat them for every single pregnancy. So if you've had a hemoglobinopathy screen for the last pregnancy and this is a you know, G9 pregnancy, you already know the screen shows, then you don't need to repeat that. You just need to do it once um, during their kind of lifetime. It's not gonna change. This is newer. Um, so the USPSTF came out saying that all adults from 18, sorry, go ahead. Um, so we have been having some issues with insurance approving some of these um, screenings, and that's that's a question that we've kind of I don't know if you have you guys encountered any of that as well. Okay, we should probably look into those cases when it does happen and see why and if there's something that we need to know because it is it should be offered to all women as per ACOM recommendations. Yeah, because I was told we had to pursue like a And the screening should be, be offered to all women, not necessarily with respect, because it is increasing in incidence. Um, so it's something that we should definitely talk to, uh, maybe bring up at our next FHC meeting as well. Um, so as far as Hep C screening, all adults between the ages of 18 to 79 should be screened once in their lifetime. So that means all our pregnant women should also be screened if they haven't been screened before. We've actually added this to our smart set. Um, so when you're doing chart review, it will be in your STM.STM.OB uh, um, smart set for you, and it should be there like to remind people that they're doing that C screening. Should be done at the beginning of pregnancy, but if the patient is already, you know, you can do it. Then add it just with your um, third trimester labs, like with your RPR and your um, CBC when you're doing that later on in pregnancy. Um, so this can be confusing. Um, so we offer genetic screening to everybody regardless of age. Now, the reason why I, I bolded and you know, made screening in, in all caps is because you, you wanna make sure that your patient understands that this is a screening tool. It's a, not a diagnostic tool, okay? Um, 
it, it can be confusing to patients because they think, oh, I have a high risk first trimester, that means my, my baby has Downs, oh, I need to do A, B, and C. So make sure that your patient understands the difference between what a screening tool is and a diagnostic tool. Your diagnostic tools are what? What, what tools do we use to diagnose? Amniocentesis is one of them. CBS. And CBS. Right. So make sure that your patient understands that as well. Your first trimester screen is going to be a combination of a blood test and ultrasound looking at nuchal translucency. And that can be done between 10 to 14 weeks. And that's really testing for aneuploidy, so your trisomies. Um, it's not testing for neural tube defects. Your second trimester screen or your quad is typically, so the optimal period to do that is between 16 to 18 weeks, but you can do it anywhere from 15 to 23 weeks. And that's another blood draw. What this adds is a test for your neural tube defects as well. So you won't see that in your first trimester screen, but your second trimester screen will give you information about risk for neural tube defects. Again, this is risk for neural tube defects. Um, if somebody didn't do their first trimester screen, um, then they can just do the quad in the second trimester. If somebody did their first trimester screen, then they add an AFP to their second trimester screen. And basically, when you combine the first and second trimester screen, you get better specificity and sensitivity. Um, has anybody heard of NIPIT? When do we do NIPIT? So that's the non-cell-free um, DNA blood test. So if they have a positive first trimester screen, that's one, one reason to do it. Or? Positive quad. High risk. Sure. High risk. What else? AMA, right? So that's the other. So it won't be approved. So people, again, going back to the patients wanting to find out about the gender of the baby, et cetera, NIFIC can give you the gender of the baby. Um, but you can't do it. It won't be approved for patients less than 35 weeks. I, uh, sorry, sorry, 35 years. I've definitely had friends that have done the NIPIT just so they could find out the gender of the baby early on before waiting for the 20-week ultrasound. They have to pay for that out of pocket. But um, you, you may get that question. Oh, can I do the blood test that tells me the gender of my baby? I don't want to wait till 20 weeks. That's what they're talking about. Um, so just know that it's not covered through insurance unless they have a high-risk um, screening and, um, our AMA, and or AMA. Um, if they've had a high-risk screening and their NIPIT is positive, positive as well, that just gives you a better um, sensitivity and specificity that there may be a condition. Um, any questions about that? Okay. So this is just a kind of, this is from the AFB, but it gives you a little bit of information about how sensitive and specific these test these tests are. So your first trimester screening is going to have uh, only about 83% sensitivity um, and about 95% specificity. So meaning it, it can detect disease 83% of the time, and when it does, it's about 95% accurate. Uh, which means what? How much, are you, how much are you expecting false positive? About 5% false positive. Okay. So you want to make sure that your patients know that as well, that if there's a positive screen, there's a chance that it may be a, a false positive. Um, now, you're, if you just do the um, second trimester screen alone without doing the first trimester screen, then your sensitivity is even less. So it's about 77%. Um, and the specificity is about the same. And if you combine the two, so you combine your first and second trimester screen together, then you'll get better sensitivity and better specificity. So that's what, if patients are really, you know, wanting to know 
then it's probably best that you do both. Any questions about that? So is it saying for the integrated screening for the second trimester, it says positive predictive value is 10%? Is that saying that if the integrative screen is positive, then only 10% of them actually end up having Down syndrome? The, the uh, is that the I'm going to have to go back on my stats and try to remember the exact the exact definitions. So if, you're, if you have a positive test, 98% um, of the time it's going to be specific to the you know, downs, trisomy, et cetera, whatever it's telling you that it's at risk for. Uh, in terms of positive predictive value, um, if you are, um, anybody can maybe help me out here? I'm trying to remember the definitions. Yeah, it, yes, exactly. You have to count the prevalence. Um, so I think you're right, but you have to account for the prevalence. All right, and then we talked about the diagnostic tests, so CVS and amnio. Um, so CVS is done between 10 to 13 weeks, and your amnio is done between 15 to 20 weeks. Um, you want to make sure you're counseling your patients about procedure-related loss rate, so meaning they can actually rupture the membranes doing these procedures, and you have to terminate the pregnancy. Okay, um, I, we just actually had this happen to a patient of ours, unfortunately, who um, was Arabic speaking and did not um, realize, I think, so did not understand the difference between screening and diagnostic, diagnostic testing um, and um, did not understand fully the risks and had to terminate her completely. It turned out the carriage health was completely normal, boy, um, at 20 weeks. So make sure that we are making sure that these patients understand that there is a potential risk. Now the risk was, so they used to say it's about one to two, like 1% for CVS and 2% for MEO, but really a lot of studies coming out show that it's much less than that. And it's also very operator dependent. So um, you wanna make sure that they're going to a place that does a lot of them and not a place that does very few of them. Um, other things. So, Things that you also need to watch out for, so if your um, patient has any risk factors for diabetes or hypertension, then make sure you add on an A1C or early glucola. Um, and then make sure you also get pre-elapse for any patient with hypertension and things like that. And I see that we're almost running out of time. So other good things to talk about is exercise. You know, exercise is not contraindicated in pregnancy. Uh, you may need to modify your exercises once your belly starts getting bigger, but uh, and you want to avoid um, sports and things like that that put you at risk for abdominal trauma or extreme, like temperatures, extreme weightlifting, those kind of things. We talked about weight, but just so that you guys have an um, idea. Um, so somebody's underweight, then, then you're telling about 28 to 40 pounds. Their normal weight, about 25, I, you know, 25 to 35 pounds. For people, I think, I feel like patients tend to gain a little bit more weight than what you expect them to. So, you know, being aware of that when you're giving them these recommendations. Overweight, so if their BMI is 25 to 29, then it's 15 to 25. If they're obese, so their BMI is 30 or more than 11 to 20 pounds. Um, just gonna skip through here. Other things you wanna counsel them on in the second and third trimester is to make sure that they're not laying um, flat because um, that can put pressure on their aorta and IVC. So encouraging them to lay on their side, especially when they're in that second and third trimester. Um, and then uh, things to watch out for, if your fundal height, there's a discrepancy more than two centimeters, then make sure that you're checking an ultrasound for growth. 
All right, we're gonna we're gonna kind of leave out some of those things here because we're getting close to time for grand rounds. But the one thing I want to make sure everybody knows about is where to look for our resources. So when you go to MedHub, um, there's a um, there, there's a link that says Notebook Obstetrics. There's also one that says Notebook of Gynecology, and that will have kind of but a bunch of information for all the different things that we've been talking about. Okay. Any other questions before we end today's session? Thank you guys. <laughs>